looked and seek God and direction. I thought it'd be good just to have a preparatory service this morning. But how do you do that? How do you prepare for communion? What would be helpful for you? I don't really know, but I know what was helpful for me as I studied, and so I would like to just bring that to you this morning. How to keep our minds and hearts at the right place for a communion service. The tendency for myself is is that it's a something you just continue to do each time. The title of my message would be, or is, The Majesty of God. Four points I'd like to bring to you to consider or think about. Interestingly enough, I fail to look at the Sunday school lesson sometimes when I'm preaching, and I'm not sure if the verses were exactly read in the devotional this morning, but it was really close to it anyway. And even one of the verses that, I'm not even sure, primary, the one before intermediate, was exactly what is in the message this morning. Maybe you'll remember it as we go along. Just give you these points that I, to, to bring our minds to the majesty of God. We are created as people in the image of a majestic God. That'd be point number one. Point number two, we need to be in awe of the majesty of God. And number three, we need to understand our inability to stand before a majestic God. Or how do we come to a majestic God? Number four, we need to see that a majestic God wants a personal relationship with us. So how do we put this all together? It's more a sermon on a topic. If we study the majesty of God, where would you go in Scripture to study and to understand who God is? There's lots of places to go. I have down in my notes where I went. I just want to share that with you. So we're going to repeat down through these points here. Number one, we are created as people in the image of a majestic God. This is very basic, but as you start at the beginning, this is who we are and where we came from. Genesis 1 26, and you don't have to turn to these as I give references. I don't necessarily have a text. There's one, one or two sections of Scripture I'll turn to, but Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. 
And 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The part to understand is, is that as, as whatever your mind comes to as you think of a majestic God, you are created in that same image. And we cannot forget that. God wants... it. We're separate, but yet we're not. And you must take it. We take it as faith that the hands I have, the feet I have, the image that we are, is who our majestic God is. But He went and created us in that way and put us here on earth. In a physical way, we are here. But we also know the spiritual life, either dead or alive, that is inside of us. Now, Genesis 3, verse 8, continues with that a little bit. It's a familiar verse. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. We see God's desire to commune and fellowship with His created image. And disobedience, as you know, to God brought sin into the world. And through the, the fall of mankind here, as you know, the, you know, the sin there in the garden, the ability to relate to a majestic God was destroyed. There was no way to come to a majestic God anymore because something came in between. The challenge with this message was how to let, Lord willing, Mike will be preaching next Sunday. There's many things I say, Mike, this is yours. And that is one of them. How can we relate to a majestic God? That, that relationship was destroyed, and how can we come back? I may refer to that quite a bit, because in our minds we cannot pretend or how, how can we not know where we are today? We've, we've been all born again. We know what has taken place. We cannot live the way they were in the Old Testament because we're just not in the Old Testament. And it's with thanksgiving that we're not. But my mind kind of goes back and forth between the two that as we try to relate to what they did, we are progressed further along, and it's, it's hard to. But anyway, at any way, the, either way, that relationship with the majestic God was, was marred. It was destroyed to some degree. So the second point is what really I would like to zero in on. We need to be in awe of the majesty of God, who God is. And it was really just a blessing to read these different parts in the Bible. Just to try to grasp, try to, try to, if anything, it kept, it puts you in your rightful place. 
as we think of created in the image of God and yet to try to relate to God, but just for this point here, just that we stand in awe to be in awe of the majesty of who God is. So a number of examples here in Scripture, and the first one I have is in Genesis 3.24. It's just not very much farther. That starts bringing this majesty of God down to earth that they see it. I, I don't know if this will be the first uh, introduction of this or not, but in Genesis 3.24 it says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There's something spiritual there. Physical and spiritual at the same time. And and the majesty of God is, like we would just put it, we can't comprehend God. We can't, it's just, God's just too big. But there are things in Scripture here that we are able to take and at least somewhat understand how majestic God is. And I... We'll get to the definition a little bit later. It's, it's, I, I just had to put this verse, actually it's coming up here. But this verse, when you think of cherubims and a flaming sword, and I don't know where that ended up, if physical mankind could see that. It says to keep the way of the tree of life. But man was taken out of the garden. That separation had to take place. And cherubims are part of the majesty of God. And specifically, when God gave Moses the instructions to build the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and you had the mercy seat, there was two cherubims that were holding their wings up, and their faces were down, looking at that mercy seat. That is part of the, the majesty of God, of who He is. And fire is another part of the majesty of God. And talks about any flaming sword. Hard to know what all may be um, involved in that flaming sword, but we will see more of that part of fire later on. Here's the definition of majesty if you look in the dictionary. I had my ideas before I looked in the dictionary, but the dictionary actually gave the first definition of Majesty is a sovereign power and authority or dignity. What does that have to do with the majestic mountains that you would think of when you first comes to mind of, you know, what is, what is majestic? Because the second definition, if you keep reading all the definitions in the dictionary, the second one is what we think of, greatness or splendor of quality or character. And I was blessed as the dictionary put sovereign power, authority, and dignity. If you want to say the first one's more important than the second one, I don't know. Not necessarily. But boy, that explains God. A sovereign power and authority. And these places that we see that, how could you overcome re-entering into the Garden of Eden? God said, no, it will not happen. And here's how. 
Cherubim, flaming sword, impossible. That is the that is the sovereign power and the authority that God has. Now you look at the dictionary and get a definition. I always uh, enjoy looking at what the Bible says. What? How does the Bible define it? And it didn't help me out a whole lot, as in, you know, grasping what it really is. But the word is used 29 times, and most of them are in the Old Testament. There's about three or four that I have down here in the New Testament. And if you if you do word study, it it generalizes things, and it just puts them uh, as a a more general than specific. You have greatness, excellency. Pomp, honor, glory. And these were a little hard to understand. Arrogant, pride, and then magnificent. And the where, where you get arrogant and pride is from some of the Hebrew words and where they're used again, and it would it would link around to a lot of different a lot of different um, words that would would be uh, you know, kind of root word majesty, but they all describe God. You know, arrogant and pride, maybe we don't think of so much, but we do know God is a jealous God. And he can do what he wants, and he is jealous for his people. So then we go to examples of God's majesty, and here's one you can turn to, Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. I'd like to read those. Exodus 19. And verses 16 through 19. Now we're just jumping in here to where the children of Israel are are, uh, meeting at uh, Mount Sinai. Verse 16 of chapter 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Now when you think upon these words in these verses, it's pretty easy to get an awe of God. I, for curiosity's sake, wondered what Mount Sinai is like. So Google, you can go online pretty quick and get some information. I don't know if any of you would have studied much into it, but Mount Sinai is 8,000 feet high. And it's also part of a mountain range, if you want to say a three-mile rough terrain with various peaks. Sinai isn't necessarily the highest one, I don't think. It's just one of the high, one of the ones that's, you know, 8,000 or so. 
And if you're familiar with the phrase Mount Horeb, there's some controversy there, but the, this three-mile range of all these mountains is where Mount Sinai was put into. And it's the most rugged desert area you can almost imagine. The pictures are just, there is nothing there. And this is where God said, I will come down on a mountain and talk to you. And I just have pointed out here all that took place when God came. There was thunders. And as I heard Jeff talking, he saw lightnings. That's given here, lightnings, a thick cloud, voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, smoke, fire, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And I don't know how many of you could look out through that river over there, and if there was a mountain that was 8,000 foot high, and you saw all these things taking place on a mountain, what would you do? We love to see great, powerful things nowadays. You, you just, at least for men, you just want to go see those things. I mean, I won't even start, I guess. I'll just... But the, the response would be here, for my desire, would be is, and, and like the children of Israel, they, they were fearful. And I hope that would be the case. Because th for, for me, that is the majesty of God, what we see here. The next one is 1 Kings 19, 8-12. to You can turn to that one. 1 Kings 19. Maybe you already can be thinking what this is. You, your mind's turning to events that God uh, showed to people. And this is another one in 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. This is Elijah as he was fleeing. He left uh, Israel or wherever he would have been dealing with the children of Israel and it says and he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb the mount of God and he came thither unto a cave and lodged there and behold the word of the Lord came to him and he said unto him what doest thou here Elijah and he said I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And you know the story there with Elijah dealing with God, God dealing with Elijah. But I just wanted to point out these majestic things again. A wind so strong that it breaks the rocks. 
and an earthquake and a fire. And then a still small voice that we don't, wouldn't, wouldn't actually think of as the majesty of God. But yet it could be as we think of who he is. And he can choose to do great things and then just to come to us in a still small voice. These, these things are part of the majesty of God. Turn to Isaiah 6. Another familiar one, but I just want to pick up on some of the details as God revealed himself to his people again. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Just to repeat a few things that were here. Sitting on a throne, we know where God is. He is in sovereign control and power. Then it also says his train filled the temple. And I still don't understand totally what that is. The, the indications given is that that's part of his robe. That's his garments that just part of him filled in one way or another. I, I don't know. And then seraphims. Now we had cherubims, but we have seraphims. And there could be a whole study put into them. But it's certainly something that we don't see physically. It's part of God's majesty in, in the spiritual sense. And this took place, it says, the posts of the door moved and the house was filled with smoke. Um, I might say there's a lot of variations between cloud and smoke and even uh, the one that was hard for me, it's, and I, I left it go, I didn't know what to do with it, is God came in a thick darkness. That doesn't seem right. It's in Exodus. I, but then I got to look and, and the way the writers may have interpreted it, I, I think it really is mostly the same thing. When you have cloud, when you have smoke, it's, it's, it's just the way God does it. And this is another example of, of seeing what takes place when God's majesty is, is just revealed to, to man. You can turn to Ezekiel 1 for another description. Ezekiel chapter 1, 26 to 28. Now I may add, the uh, when Jesus was transfigured and his clothes became white and shining we understand the trinity as god the father god the son and the holy ghost and sometimes i'm not sure which one of the trinity is being described so it may be they're they're together yet they're different and 
as we get to one in Revelation, we may, you know, this might be Jesus instead of God, but the three are all together, and there's majesty either way. But this is what's given in Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28. And it says, And above the firmament was that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of that brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. Just interesting how it points out some of the same things we've been talking. The color of amber and the appearance of fire. And it uses the word appearance quite a bit because they don't know how to describe it. Revelations uses like, like this. It's like that. It, it's beyond what human, us as people, how we can describe it. And so here we have color of amber, the appearance of fire, but it says the brightness like a rainbow in the sky. And when you see a nice rainbow, those colors, especially a nice full rainbow, are just bright and vibrant. And it says that the, if I have it right here, about the brightness was, the, the rainbow was the brightness. I, a little bit how to take it there, but the appearance must have been uh, amazing, awe-inspiring. And this, again, I think, is the, the majesty of God and who He is. I have two more yet. Daniel 10, 4-9. If you want to ch- turn there, you may. Daniel chapter 4. Sorry, Daniel chapter 10, verse 4. Somewhat similar, but just wanted to point out some things here in this section. Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 to 9. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as the lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. 
Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. This person that Daniel would have saw had the appearance of lightning. It says his face as the appearance of lightning. His eyes were as lamps of fire. His arms and feet like polished brass. And a voice like the sound of a multitude. How can you talk as one person and sound like a multitude? I, I just take it as the majesty of who God is. In Revelation 1, 13 to 16... want to read over what it says here about what John would have saw. Revelation chapter 1, 13 through 16. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and a girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were like, were white like wool, as white as snow, And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. Head and hair like wool, white as snow. And again, eyes were as flames of fire, feet like unto fine brass. But the voice instead of a multitude was the voice as the sound of many waters. And out of his mouth went a two-edged sword, his countenance as the sun shining in its strength. This again just reveals the majesty of God to give us an understanding, slight understanding. Second Chronicles 7, 1 and 2, you don't have to turn to it, but that is when Solomon would have initiated the temple that he built, dedication service, the sacrifices there, and it, it talks about fire coming down and consuming the sacrifices. And also the glory of the Lord filling the house. It's another example that we could look at. And there's numerous other ones that you could go to. And the one I thought of in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost when when the, the wind came and they were anointed with the Holy Spirit. What would have that been like? It does us good to imagine how it would be if we really saw God as described. I I just want to stir your thinking of who God really is. And I woke up this morning, I don't know what time it was, but there was a wind blowing. How many of you heard it windy this morning? 
And it was windy enough that I told my wife, I said, I hope the siding stays on the house because it can make a little bit of noise. And I laid there and I thought, oh, it's windy outside. And it took me about, you know, three, four, five seconds. And this thought comes to me, what if that was God? What if, and these things happen around us today, and these are specifically when we know God was, was you know, coming and meeting. But there's a, there's a unexplainable maybe feeling that goes through you or that should go through you at times of who God is. And that brings us to the third point I have down here. We need to understand our inability. Depends how you want to read it, but you get the point. How do we stand before this majestic God? And how can we as sinful people come to a majestic God? As I referred early, earlier about Lord willing, Mike preaching. If we could just stop there, we don't know what's the future. How would you stand before God if it wasn't for His Son Jesus coming to earth? I'm getting into Mike's now next Sunday. But if you could pretend, how would you come to this God that's described here in Scripture? How would you come to Him? Simple answer is we can't. Turn to Isaiah 2. I would like you to turn there for this. It's a section of scripture I didn't realize was in the Bible, but it came up because it has the word majesty in it a number of times. And as I read it, it fits well with if we could pretend we didn't have any future, if it was hopeless. This is a little description of what that would be. I would just like to read Isaiah 2, 10 to 22. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> it's talking about the day of the Lord. And so this is, this is general, but it gives comparisons of you know, just who God is and what He can do and who man is. And it, it just really, I think, helped me to pretend, if you want to say, that, you know, what, how can we come to this God? How can we come to God? Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low, and upon all the cedars of Lebanon, and that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures, 
And the loftiness of men shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks, for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? I don't have much comment about that section of Scripture besides if you stood before God and there was no Jesus Christ, where would you go? What would you do with your things if you were brought before a majestic God? Like I said, we can't. And that simply brings me to my last point that says we need to see that a majestic God wants a personal relationship with us. I think this is the part that either we take for granted, but I'd like to lay out that who God is, and yet this is what He wants for each of us. As like I say, we're created in His image. And a really, the answer is next Sunday, the communion service. And I want to pray for Mike that he can have the ability to share how we can come to this majestic God. That each of us would understand who we are. And that communion wouldn't be one of those things we just do again. But that Thanksgiving, just recognition of who God is and what He has done, would be on our hearts and on our minds. And for me, the only way to get a hold of that is to see who God really is and His majesty. I wasn't quite sure how to put in words for myself. I tried to make a little diagram here on my paper, and I, it, it still doesn't make sense to me. And I, it's like when you can't get things out of your head sometimes and get it understood. But do you know where you came from? And do you know where you are now? And if you line them up, is that pointing to where you want to go? 
challenge for me because if I don't look back, I tend to just keep going forward. And I don't have three dots to keep everything the way it's supposed to go. And so I wanted to encourage us this morning as we take communion next Sunday to think about who God really is and His majesty, and who we really serve. Once again, Lord bless you, Mike, as you bring the message next Sunday. Shall we kneel for prayer?